Hey, my name is Augustine Colebrook. I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. My focus is on big picture political movements that are happening within the profession, some of the controversial questions, and centering voices that are not being regularly heard. I'm Layla Wyatt. I am a traveling student midwife, learning midwifery from cultures and a lineage of midwifery throughout the United States. I'm here to center the voices of students to hear their calling, their pathway, why they chose midwifery, and even share a bunch of birth stories along the way. Greetings, I'm Jamara Amani. I am a midwife, a mom, and a social justice activist. I am here to challenge white supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, and anything that keeps people from being their best and living their best selves as we have the human right to do. And I am looking forward to sharing stories of birth justice on this podcast. Hi there, Delmar Dalton. I am non-binary, queer, transgender, midwife, and full-spectrum female. My focus is on increasing access and equity in midwifery care and midwifery education. Hello, my name is Angie Love. I am a community nurse midwife in Vero Beach, Florida, at the practice of midwife love. I also do telehealth midwifery through Midwife RX. I'm a mama, and I am committed to maintaining birth choices for all people and educating a future generation of midwives because we will not die out. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast, where we're looking at the big, heavy issues in midwifery. And today we have the pleasure of speaking to Hermine Hayes-Klein and Katie McCall. And uh, Hermine, I want to start with you. Can you give us an introduction? Who are you and what do you do? Oh, thank you so much for welcoming me to your program, Augustine. It's a real pleasure to have a chance to speak with you again. Um, You and I have had some wonderful conversations over the years in different capacities. Um, I'm an attorney, as you know, and I'm based out of Portland, Oregon. And my work is um, for the last decade or so, I think since around 2010 or 11, my work has really been advocating for uh, birthing people's human rights in maternal health care during pregnancy and childbirth, um, and that includes uh, advocating for respect for all um, patient rights in labor and delivery settings in all locations, and uh, advocacy for um, the professional security and sustainability of the midwifery profession, uh, as well as recognition of the role of doulas um, in childbirth and women's rights to have that kind of support. So I I started this work um, out of The Hague when I was living there. I lived in Holland for five years and gave birth to both my kids in the Dutch system, which as you know, is very midwifery focused and traditionally um, has expected that healthy women give birth at home with midwives. They save the doctors in the hospitals for backup and they have always had better outcomes in the United States. So I had the blessing of giving birth in this system uh, that really sort of explodes the American uh, falsehood that childbirth is so dangerous, risky, and things happen so quickly that um, all childbirth has to happen in the hospital in order for it to be safe. I also got to teach law um, at the Hague University while I was there and really start to study um, what's happening to women in childbirth from a human rights perspective. So um, ever since I left Holland and moved back to the States in 2012, my work has really focused on these issues. And especially for the last five years since 2017, I've really, my work has focused on 
on legal advocacy and representation as an attorney, rather than just as an activist um, or an advocate, which has been another form of my work in this area. And so in that capacity, I've had a chance to represent um, many midwives um, in the states where I am licensed as an attorney, which are um, Oregon, where I live, and then sometimes I have some intersection with cases in New York, where I'm also licensed in Connecticut, and then consulting on cases um, where midwives are facing different kinds of legal proceedings in other states and even other nations. And so, um, as you know, midwives can face a, a number of different types of legal proceedings, which perhaps I should take a pause. You know, what I do is I'm a lawyer and I I advocate for women's rights and childbirth, and that includes advocacy for midwives. And so in that way, I've had a chance to work on a lot of midwife cases. And I'd be happy to talk a little more about that if it's helpful. Yeah, actually, I really want you to. I think it's very helpful. Many of our listeners are midwives themselves or are student midwives concerned about what they perceive to be a rising persecution um, of the practice of midwifery. And so I definitely think it would be helpful to go into that. Let's pause for a second and introduce Katie um, McCall. Katie, hi, thank you so much for joining us. Will you introduce yourself? Who are you and where are you? What do you do? Yeah, so I was, um, I, I have been attending births for 20 years, um, started out in the state of California and um, am here just as a representative of that experience that Hermine is talking about, the real life experience of a midwife um, going through the process of um, being attacked. And um, in California, I lost my practice as a licensed midwife there working in the home birth and birthing center settings. Um, and through that process, went through both the criminal and the um, state uh, licensure um, processes of, uh, you know, being attacked, I guess, um, and then moved across country to New England, reestablished my practice in another licensure state, which um, was not under a medical board, but under a midwifery council, so a slightly different model, um, and practice there, um, or here rather, um, and also across the border in uh, one other state that licenses and another state that does not license. So I've um, practiced in a variety of different settings um, and was able to reestablish both a home birth and birth center based practice before I finally retired because I wanted to sleep at night. So <laughs> um, that's my experience. Very worthy goals. Practical. Yeah. Yep. I love that. Well, um, first I want to, before we get into the specifics, I, I'd like to ask you both to kind of answer the question, why are midwives under attack? What's changed? Shall I answer this? Yeah, if you I mean, go. I'm not sure that anything has changed for midwives to be under attack. Mm -hmm. Midwives have been under attack in the United States for a long time. They were uh, allowed to exist um, to the extent it was helpful to those in power for some centuries. And then when medicine took over obstetrics and moved it all into the hospital in the early 20th century, midwifery was eliminated. So it was not only attacked, but it was effectively attacked to the point that it, it disappeared um, and was gone for about 50 years. And of course, we know that there were limited exceptions to that. Midwives always exist somewhere. They're never completely gone. But um, as, a, as a profession, as an organized group, they were gone for about 50 years until, um, until the 1970s when midwives started to reinvent the profession and rediscover how physiological birth works because that knowledge had disappeared along with midwives as it has in centuries past. And so 
since midwives, you know, all of the midwives who started work in, in the 1970s, none of them were recognized by US state licensing systems. They were simply not providers that existed. As far as um, the healthcare world in the United States knew, doctors and nurses deliver baby, what's a midwife kind of thing. And, um, and so since that time, midwives have organized and worked in different states because um, healthcare is generally regulated state by state. That's something important to understand. And so it's generally a matter of state law whether a professional is recognized. You know, for example, naturopathic doctors are full on doctors in the state of Oregon, but they're criminals in the state of New York. And that's uh, an example of the way that a licensure happens state by state. And so, um, you know, it, the, in the culture of, the, of, of different, of US states, does vary a little from state to state. And the power of the medical lobby does vary a little bit from state to state. And so the, the way that that conversation has unfolded about are midwives allowed to exist and what is going, how are they gonna be integrated into the legal system? How will they be integrated into the healthcare system has varied from state to state. There's been no concerted organization or federal oversight that has ensured that we have some consistency. And so the legal status of midwives is a patchwork across the United States. And um, I, I don't think midwives have gained true legal security in any state, though some are better than others. And, um, and they've every step that they've made to advance has been in the face of backlash. And so, um, Midwives have been getting persecuted in different ways in different states, um, some worse than others for sure, uh, all this time. And you know why? Why? Why does this happen? Uh, it's a function both of economic monopoly, which is why midwives were el eliminated in the first place, combined with sexism, because midwives are sort of a female knowing as applied to childbirth. Um, but really, I think what's happening. Now, the last 20, 30 years, more than ever, midwives are, are like a walking professional indictment of modern obstetrics because the modern obstetric, as the cesarean rate skyrockets and has gone up and up, the fact that midwives can keep their cesarean section rates to 10% to 2%, um, it, it again, just like the Dutch system explodes the American falsehood that safe birth has to happen in the hospital, midwives explode the obstetric falsehood that childbirth is so dangerous that the babies need to be cut out of one in three women who walk through the door. And so therefore it's very important to eliminate them. And it's very important for those who wanna protect the story that childbirth is so dangerous that it's only survived through the intervention of doctors to um, really to, to give a lot of media attention to any bad outcome story from a midwife because they can use that to try to reinforce that cultural story. Um, and then, um, and then also to just eliminate them because again, like, yeah. And, and, yeah. and one more reason is because you can treat women differently when they have nowhere else to turn than if you know, they have somewhere else to turn. So that's a third reason for the control and elimination of midwives. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe the reason that it's, closer in the consciousness of midwives right now is because there's simply more volume of us. Midwifery as a profession has been growing exponentially. So maybe we're seeing it that way, but, but either way we, you know, I hear stories all the time. I'm pretty plugged in glo uh, globally, nationally. And I think like you are, Hermine, and I, I feel like the stories have been growing. Do you feel that way too? Tell us about some of the calls that you get. 
I mean, so I think this is this is where it's worth turning back to what are the different ways that legal pressure is brought to bear on midwives, you know, and I think that it's important for midwives also to understand the distinction in different kinds of legal proceedings and um, uh, the three major kinds of proceedings that are brought against midwives to try to put them on the defensive and threaten them are um, administrative proceedings. If you live in a state where you are licensed, then the, mo the, the most common form that a complaint again, that you did something wrong on a birth is gonna take is gonna be an administrative proceeding against your license um, where you will go before your licensing body and that licensing body will investigate you and they'll file a complaint and you should have an opportunity for due process within that proceeding. And we can talk Augustine about what are some of the ways that midwives can minimize their risks within those proceedings and yeah, yeah. Um, et cetera. That's what I went through um, I know 39 times in my state. So I'm very precisely and, and, and the administrative case. proceedings can be um, can be weaponized against midwives yeah. to punish them for offering services that local medical authorities and, and don't offer. Yeah. yeah, and that they don't want yeah. you to offer, and that they, yeah, you know, right. that they're able to use their influence over state the state to to try to shut down, um, even though women are it's well within their legal and human rights to access those services, and so um, administrative proceedings is sort of the most common form of a proceeding in a place where you hold a license, um, in a place where you don't hold a license or in a place where midwives are not licensed. One of the reasons that they are more vulnerable in those states is because. Um, the, the most common form, like type of proceeding that a complaint against them is going to take is going to be a criminal proceeding. So the places where you see a midwife arrested, investigated, etc. are places where um, there, where there's no licensure. And what they say in those places is, well, we have to use criminal law against her because we can't, there's no licensing proceeding, which is problematic on a lot of different ways, because why are you holding her to a higher standard than anybody else, a criminal standard, when you refuse to um, license and regulate her, you know what I mean, and set a standard, there is no standard, you didn't set a standard for her, you could have through regulation, but you didn't, so why are you now holding her to a super standard of criminal law, and you know, this is very important for midwives to understand, because in states like North Carolina, where they've unrolled um, criminal proceedings against midwives for simple allegations of negligence, failure to diagnose, failure to intervene. These are everyday allegations of negligence that doctors face administrative or civil proceedings for. And, and I'll hear midwives say, well, and I say, this is wrong. This is very, very wrong. It's always wrong to use a criminal proceeding against a healthcare practitioner for an allegation of negligence. And midwives say, well, what, would you let her get away with it? Would you say, you think you say midwives shouldn't be accountable? No, no. And then this is where I have to remember, oh, they don't understand there's different kinds of proceedings. What I'm saying is, use civil, use administrative, but criminal basically makes it so that you can't be a midwife. It's impossible to be a midwife if in the event of a bad outcome, which any maternal healthcare practitioner will eventually face, you might might face murder charges or manslaughter charges. That's just too big a risk to be a midwife. And then it's happened in many states. Oh, it happens. Utah, Utah I mean, I'm thinking of several, New York, there's lots of options. Yeah. There's yeah, many yeah. times that midwives have been cuffed in front of their neighbors, grannies, led up the street, up and down the street, you know, to be shamed. It's, it's ridiculous, but it's, and it, but it happens mm -hmm. all the time and, or yeah. too often, shall we say. 
And again, especially in particularly in those states where that have denied licensure to midwives. And then the third form of legal proceeding that a midwife can face is a civil lawsuit where she is actually sued, um, like doctors are sued in court for money. And I think that's rising because um, coverage is rising for midwives. As long as midwives did not have medical malpractice insurance or liability insurance, most lawyers wouldn't bother to sue them because they're they don't have no enough money, money to be yeah. worth it. Um, but of course, that's that's a risky place for a midwife to be to not carry insurance and or in the hope that it will dissuade because then if they do choose to sue her, she has no shield, her personal assets are at stake. Um, and I, so I, I think that's happening more. Um, and then I just think it's worth mentioning that the other major way that midwives are that it's difficult to be a midwife and that the state makes it difficult to be a midwife is through its control and manipulation of um, her right to, to payment. You know, and, the, and that's particularly from a state level with regard to payment for the service of women who are covered by Medicaid um, and the discrimination that's still happening in, in most, if not, you know, many state agencies um, toward midwives then makes it so that not only are you always sort of in danger of being attacked for the work you do, but you're not getting paid either, even though the lines around the block of women who want your services, uh, the state is making it impossible for you. And um, I think very often the patients, the women themselves don't even know what the midwives are going through in order to even try to show up for them. Yeah, that's definitely one of the parts of my story for sure. Um, I ran a, a, a birth center and then a series of birth centers in Oregon, and we eventually closed um, in part because of all the administrative um, cases, but also uh, because of this exact issue. Um, the Medicaid system was withholding, I think by the time I closed, about $186,000, and you can't run a business without cash flow. And so when we would help the patients understand that they had to appeal their case, you know, I think we said we would actually fill out the paperwork and help them appeal it. And actually one of, of about 45 or 46 um, people we helped appeal it actually showed up to their appeal. So it, it was the same thing. It's like the, the very people that we're struggling to try to serve oftentimes don't understand the hoops that we're jumping through or how to help them. And uh, it's kind of crushed from all sides is, is how I described it. Uh, Katie, you said you went through a couple of different processes of the three or, you know, kind of four with the, with the biller source. What did you experience in, in the challenges that you went through? Yeah, I was, I was going to add to that um, uh, pretty awesome list that um, Hermine had given just, uh, just now um, to say that I would say one other way that midwives are attacked is through um, regulations within their license to make it impossible to practice legally. Um, I, I would, you know, like the state of Delaware for a while was requiring physician supervision and no midwives were able to obtain it. So they weren't able to get a viable license, even though it was on the books. Um, and in California until recently, midwives were also required to have supervision and no physicians would supervise. And so midwives were being given licenses, but then, you know, in retrospect, anytime they were investigated, they were told that they were practicing illegally because they didn't have that supervision on the record. So um, that was partly my experience, I would say, in, in part of my process, but I went through the uh, criminal uh, court process in the state of California um, for attending a delivery as a student midwife um, and uh, having a preceptor who at the time I didn't realize was not 
practicing legally on the books. Um, and even though my uh, midwifery, my meek, midwif uh, my meek midwifery school um, had approved her as a preceptor, um, and I thought that was all that was required, um, she was not legally practicing. And although, you know, I did eventually realize that basically everybody in the state of California wasn't practicing legally in that time period. This was back in uh, 2007. Um, all the midwives were required to have physician supervision. And we had all been told um, by the Midwifery Advisory Council, which we didn't realize wasn't um, actually a, a regulatory body, um, that midwives could be either licensed or they could be uh, what was called a you know, religious exempt, meaning that they um, only worked with uh, certain populations. Um, so anyway, just lots of misinformation. Um, but, you know, um, brass tacks were that I was arrested for attending a birth as a student where the preceptor didn't show up. Um, and uh, that investigation carried on without my knowledge um, up into receiving my license and being a licensed midwife and was not arrested for that delivery until I was uh, practicing licensed midwife and had been so for, um, you know, upwards of, I think, eight months or so. Um, and so I went through the criminal process because it uh, the birth um, happened while I wasn't licensed and then went through the, um, the um, whatever it's called, the, I'm forgetting all the terms now, but <laughs> the process against my license. So that administrative um, process, um, because I was already a licensed midwife at that, that time. So I did both um, while I was in California and then went through the administrative process, also um, practicing in New Hampshire only because in New Hampshire, every um, hospital admission um, that's done while you're licensed is investigated. So if it's more than just a routine, um, you know, observation for somebody who transferred care, um, then there's an investigation of every single one of those. Um, so most midwives go through several of them in their career. Um, and and I, I would say, Comparing all three of those, uh, I would much rather go through that. <laughs> um, you know, it's a headache, it's a hassle, you know, it can be embarrassing, it can be problematic because, you know, you can get kind of a, a bullying situation going on. Um, but I was still able to, um, you know, practice even, even if there were, you know, recommendations made or whatever. Um, and I, the criminal uh, case was definitely um, the hardest as far as like, you know, stress and um, money and, you know, losing everything. Um, so, uh, you know, having to choose and, and I, I really, you know, I've gone back and forth as far as um, how I feel midwifery should be handled. Um, that's the, the age old question, right? Like, should we license? Should we not license? Should we, you know, how should midwives be governed, you know, and I, I don't know that I have an answer for that, but I do know that the act of um, choosing to have a baby outside of the hospital is a political act. And um, I, I think our early uh, ancestor <laughs> midwives from the, you know, 60s and 70s got that right, that it's a, it's a political act to choose to do something very private in your own setting. And um, to not give over control of your body and midwives stand between those who choose to do that and those who choose to control it. And so of course we're gonna be caught in the crossfires midwives. So. That's so well said. I, and I just, I, I don't know, Katie, I just felt like I heard your voice and I know you're many years past this and you've done lots of work, but 
It's actually so traumatic. I, I have PTSD from the process that I went through and I know you do too. Oh yeah. I, I, um, when it first happened to me, I was very vocal. I know, uh, Hermine and I, um, worked together on doing a human rights and childbirth, um, conference in Oregon, um, years ago. And I did a lot of interviews, a lot of podcasts. I wrote two books, um, tyranny of the cubicle and, um, battle shower. Um, and then I went into practicing again and, um, the, the dust settled. Um, and I don't know that I was a really great midwife. I was very medical. Uh, I don't think anybody in that I worked with in California would have recognized me in New Hampshire. I transferred, I think probably 30% of our, uh, clients. I took on a partner who thankfully did not have my PTSD and, <laughs> would pause sometimes and be like, she really doesn't need to go in, you know? Um, and I did eventually retire because I, I just, every, every birth, it didn't matter how long I went or what kind of work I did. Every birth, um, was an investigation waiting to happen. Um, I went for years of, you know, sleeping in my clothes because I was waiting for police to come get me. Um, and even now talking, this is the first time I think I've talked about this, uh, experience, you know, um, now it's been, you know, over a decade, um, I can feel my heart racing, just even, you know, hearing Hermine's voice, you know, so it's, yeah. it's pretty intense, the same intense way. process. I'm yeah. kind of trauma bonded yeah. with Hermine a bit. Too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> She's off. I think a lot of midwives are. We reach out to, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard because yeah. I love, love you so much. But, I, I, I yeah. love you so, so much. Scared. And, and so yeah. often I'll call yeah. midwives or midwives I work with in the past and I'll be like, it's me. I'm not calling about anything scary. Right. <laughs> I was totally. going to yeah. talk. Yeah. Yeah. The, Hermine, exactly. Hermine never, Hermine never, never struck me that way because she didn't practice in California or anywhere I was. But, um, but yeah, we, we did talk a lot during that time period. And I, I retired into doing um, midwifery billing. So that's what I've been doing. And it's been really great. So I feel like I'm able to do something that um, supports midwives in that last way that they can be attacked. Like I know, for example, in the state of Maryland, they just decided um, care first just decided to uh, not do any more, you know, midwifery support basically. And um, so, you know, even in the commercial world um, outside of Medicaid, even though, uh, you know, we do a lot of Medicaid, but um, it's really um, difficult, I think, for midwives to make ends meet when they try to make it financially um, feasible for um, families to be able to access that, uh, that option. So. Yeah, there's such an intersectionality here, like when we talk about midwives under attack. Uh, and thank you so much for your vulnerability and, and sharing this with us. Um, I think there are so many new midwives um, that can have rose-colored glasses on. And I think this, this conversation and this topic is so near and dear to my heart. I, I am the, I am pretty sure, I mean, maybe you have more stats, but I'm pretty sure I'm officially the most investigated midwife in the history of Oregon. I fielded uh, 39 investigations um, in that state and, um, and going through that process where, I mean, 37 of those came in a four year time period. So it, it just never ended. It was just like this assault, like one after another. And, you know, I, I have absolute male PTSD. I won't open the mail. Mm-hmm. I won't, I live in a country you can't get mail um, mm-hmm. specifically because of that PTSD response. And um, the phone, <laughs> 
it's taken me a long time to like answer calls and those kinds of things. It's really intense. It, it, it changes so much about us when we face mm-hmm. that kind of extreme, um, attack, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I just want to, I just want to say like, I, I feel you, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I feel you. And I, it, it's no small thing. Um, you know, CPTSD, I actually have done an extreme amount of study and research around this. And I actually teach about this with folks who are recovering from, this exact scenario, CPTSD or complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And I like to call it, you know, more of like um, a response, a post-traumatic response is from repeated exposure. It's not like one event. So certainly getting arrested is a, is a PTSD experience, but all the things that led up and afterward become this mm-hmm. constant onslaught. And, and that kind of constant onslaught actually changes the very nature and structure of your brain and, yeah. and neuro, neuro, neurology and all. Every, everything is changed because of that. And one of the things that is changed in me is that I, I'm actually like yourself, I'm sure Katie, a very outspoken, educated, passionate, committed person. And I, I lose a lot of my cognitive ability when I'm in that kind of stress. And I yeah. think that that is what ultimately is so hard for me looking back over it is like my responses, my testimony, all the times I had to get on with the judge and everything. I, I don't sound intelligent. I sound like exactly what they intend you to sound like, which is a beaten animal hiding Mm -hmm. and scared from the process. And I, I guess in some ways, part of the reason I research and talk about CPTSD so much is to kind of normalize for people going through that, what that really looks like. So I, I just wanted to say thank you very much for sharing. That, for- that's really, that's really good mm, to hear because one of my biggest regrets with my criminal case, because I took it all the way to um, trial, is that I didn't testify. Um, we had so much, so many supportive um, people came to testify on my, my behalf. Um, Dr. Stu Fishbein. Um, did an amazing mm-hmm. job. And uh, we had an ER doctor, all kinds of people, but I never testified because we didn't think it was really necessary. And um, so sometimes I wonder, well, maybe if I testified, but I think you're right. I think I probably would have just, you know, sobbed and blabbered and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. anyway, so. Because yeah. it's a stress response, right? I mean, like right. you, you can't really override your neuro- neurological response right. to things. So mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I, I am so grateful that you're willing to be brave with us in this call and, and thank you very much. To, can I just yeah, comment please. on what y'all are talking about regard to please, the, please, the please. trauma that midwives experience um, and then the secondary trauma that midwives experience observing midwives go through with what midwives like you have gone through. And as you know, the one way that midwives cope with that secondary trauma or try to shield themselves from it is by telling themselves the story. This couldn't happen to them. She must have done something very wrong. And that is, that's a fantasy. Like, the, like a legal is a fantasy. <laughs> like, right, yeah. um, like oh, those membership, what are the, all the midwives love the idea of a membership association. <laughs> fantasy, y'all, yeah. fantasy. fantasy. There's only yeah. one way you will be legally secure. And that is if the law recognizes your, the human rights of the people that you are serving and you are the fact that you are the experts in what you do and you have a right to be here. <laughs> um, yeah, but on on oh that my. issue of trauma, like, you know, it, it, so many midwives go through this and I just, you know, something that I'm sure you both have seen many times that I know I've seen many times is attacks on midwives close to retirement. Like, and I'm not talking about young midwives like you, Katie, I'm talking about elder midwives who've been doing this for decades. And, um, 
you know, have been doing an amazing job serving women and families for decades. And then here comes the state, right? You know, they've been scraping by to serve their calling. And then here comes the state, right? You know, a few years before they were thinking about closing up shop to bankrupt them through legal proceedings and traumatize them through legal proceedings. And how many midwives do you know who've pushed up their date of retirement? How many midwives do you know who leave the profession with a broken heart? That's not right. Yep. None of that is right. But, um, and, and it is definitely a cost and an injury caused by the topic of this podcast, which is the legal persecution of midwives. But one more thing, you know, I want to share with you guys, because I do a lot of work representing uh, women who have been traumatized by the violation of informed consent, generally in the hospital setting. And um, I mean, there's, a, I think we should talk a little about this, I'm going to table it for a second, the phenomenon of women genuinely being injured over and over the unbelievable atrocities committed against birthing women in the hospital and zero accountability. Mm -hmm. And then a midwife who's on an amazing twins birth out of hospital, physiological twins breach complex, got the babies out, everybody's doing great. And here she has the cops at the door, you know? So it's like that whole phenomenon of the people who are hurting women getting away with it and the people who are not hurting women being punished for it. Um, so, but what I've learned through working with traumatized people is that, you know, the, the, the story of the trauma is generally a long story with many things that happen, many traumatic things that happen in it. For example, if you're being bullied all through your labor, you know what I mean? There's a lot of trauma in the whole thing, but there's generally a like eye of the storm trauma moment. That is like the moment she always breaks down crying in telling the story. And I bet you two have an eye of the storm mm -hmm. trauma moment in your stories as well. I think that's interesting because those eyes of the storm tell us something about the whole story, you know, but also something that I think can be helpful for you guys and all other midwives that have gone through this is something I learned from a trauma counselor that I was consulting with for one of these cases. And she explained to me, you know, I mean, we're moving away from calling it PTSD to PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. And she's like, and the reason for this is that it recognizes trauma as an injury rather than a disorder you're not broken, you're not a disordered person, you're just injured because, and, and sometimes you're injured because somebody injured you, you know, mm -hmm. and injuries heal. Mm -hmm. Injuries hurt, but injuries heal. They might leave a scar, but that's injuries heal. And, and she said, this is much more helpful and liberating to those who experience trauma. She talked about her firefighter clients, you know what I mean? And how much more empowered they feel with the injury frame than the disorder frame, because it, mm -hmm. it speaks to the capacity for healing. Absolutely. Yeah. I, li I like that word more response too. It's like, it's, it's just uh -huh. a response to a set uh -huh. of stimulus. It's not really a disorder mm -hmm. at all. Absolutely. Yes. Gosh, <clears throat> it's such a big topic. Well, can we, can we jump to some of the cases you're working on right now? I mean, what's happening around the country? What are you being called to help with? Um, let's see what relating to midwives and, and their defense. Yeah. Um, yeah. well in the state of Oregon, um, two issues that are that are coming up quite frequently and a lot of my work in Oregon focuses around um, the Oregon Health Authority's endless attacks endless. on midwives. Endless. You know, people think about Oregon as a state where you can be a midwife, where midwives are welcome. You know, they, it's one, they think about it as one of the better states in the U.S. for accessing midwifery care. I know women who moved to Oregon so they could access midwifery care because midwives are I moved there to, to practice. <laughs> and yep. and mm -hmm. certainly midwives that moved there with the expectation that would be re relatively secure. And, and that's one of the funny things about the law because there's the law and then there's the administration of the law, right? You know, like, so the law can be written down but then there's human beings. I just love the title of your book, The Tyranny of the Cubicle. That is so brilliant. 
Like there's human so beings brilliant. in cubicles that are then applying that law. And if they are doing so through the lens of unchecked bias and discrimination, then even well-written law can be used to persecute. So in Oregon, the regulations for direct entry midwives are not bad. You know, direct entry midwives can do VBAC after three with a consult, you know, after two without one, and they can do twins and they can do breach. And for me, as a, a protector of birthing women's human rights, that's very important to know that no matter what her risk factor, the system does not abandon her. She gets to make her choice and a midwife, you know, in theory is able to show up for her. Um, you know, the big, like, Basically, the biggest way that Oregon Health Authority has, um, the most significant way that Oregon Health Authority has circumscribed midwifery, it, since midwives got licensed in the 90s here in Oregon, they've never been compensated in a straightforward way by the Oregon Health Authority mm -hmm. for the payment of Medicaid um, patients. And the way, the hoops that they had to jump through are all about discrimination and all about signaling to the clients that this is a dangerous, sketchy choice. So we're gonna make you go through all these extra hoops if you wanna get compensation for these services. And then- Signaling is such a good word. That's exactly mm -hmm. what's happening. Oh yeah. yeah, I often think about like the husband who's like, if it's not dangerous, why would the state make you have to go on mm -hmm. open card, leave mm -hmm. your regular doctor and all your regular mm -hmm. providers, which was the law of Oregon for many years until we challenged it, and, um, and, and go without your regular healthcare providers for your whole pregnancy. And then at the end of your pregnancy, you can apply for coverage for your midwife. Like, I just imagine all the people that are like, this is too weird. Let's go to the doctor where we just give them the card and get it's covered, period, <laughs> by the Oregon Health Authority. <laughs> but since 2016, like basically in around the time they shut down Augustine, it, it, what was happening was that the Oregon Health Authority was being was under the influence of medical directors and doctors with no experience or understanding of out-of-hospital birth and unchecked bias and discrimination who would literally set law and policy on the basis of meetings where they'd say, I just imagine you wanna be closer to a surgery for that. <laughs> That's like pretty ignorant and not evidence-based and yet they have the power to set the law. And so while, so what, what's been happening really since 2014, 15 has been really focused, focused um, attacks on certain providers in particularly rural parts of Oregon that were specifically offering vaginal birth after cesarean where their local hospitals uh, don't want that offered and or physiological birth. And, and outside of Portland, there's a lot of hostility and pushback on midwives. So a lot of frivolous complaints filed by the hospitals, you know, every on all your transfers kind of thing. And, um, and then the state runs with those against the midwives and you know, it's incredibly burdensome as you know. And, and then basically they changed the rules for coverage in 2016 to make them even, it even harder to get covered to the point that, and, and they use that process for coverage to make life so difficult for midwives that most Oregon home birth midwives cannot accept Medicaid. Um, they cannot try even try to bill it because not only will they not get paid for the services that they provide, but um, the state will use the fact that they even asked to get paid to try to hurt them. And so, exactly. yeah, so um, I'm suing the Oregon Health Authority. I'm representing six different women that are challenging the fact that everything the Oregon Health Authority is doing is illegal, is discrimination, and is in violation of the Federal Affordable Care Act, which, as you know, the whole focus of the Affordable Care Act is 
um, is to maximize health and minimize pathology. And that's what midwives are all about. And so it specifically says that birth center services need to be covered to the extent those services are within the scope of the licensed providers working there. That includes VBAC, you know, for example, but Oregon Health Authority has not been doing that. They're, they refuse to cover VBAC out, outside the hospital. For example, that's just one of their many coverage restrictions. Yeah, they had BMI restrictions. They had previous birth outcome yes. restrictions. They yes. had all kinds of, yeah, I remember. Yes, yeah. and their safety analysis is completely phony and bogus because Bunk. it doesn't, <laughs> it ignores all risks to the mother. It looks at very, it, you know, it, it cherry picks the studies that matter and it doesn't care if you get pushed into five cesareans as a result of their denial of access to vaginal birth and or any of the risks to you or your downstream pregnancies or the babies carried in any of these pregnancies from that mm -hmm. kind of direction so so representing midwives and their right to get paid is very very critical in the state of oregon also representing midwives who do twins twins and breach because again it's within their scope but because it's so politically marginal um they're attacked. They're attacked for um, doing beautiful twins births. <laughs> While meanwhile, I represent the women who tried to have a twins birth at the hospital and, you know, went through nightmares trying to get any kind of accountability for how they were treated there. Um, outside of, um, you know, around the United States, it's, uh, it's everything from civil lawsuits to, um, uh, you know, licensing complaints for things that are within your scope that should, you know, li just licensing complaints that result from the medical community's refusal to integrate you, to um, helping midwives to write better regulations in their state or to advocate for their security. Um, but like I said, midwives have not achieved real security and anywhere, probably Washington anywhere. State. Washington yeah, State is probably our best closest. state. Yeah, it's the closest. It's our closest state, but there's still work to do uh -huh. everywhere. And really, fundamentally, yeah. because everywhere there's a need for real recognition of birthing women's right, reproductive rights and Definitely. rights to make their decisions about their health care and their bodies and their babies. Until we have that, Definitely. we don't have much. Definitely. And I've long time maintained that um, the type of oversight board in the licensed states makes a huge difference in the safety of the midwives. If we can have a midwifery run board that is made up of the very professions professionals that they're policing, we have a much safer situation for midwives. And unfortunately, many of the licensed states have uh, physician run boards, they have nurse run midwifery boards, or they have some conglomeration under some umbrella organization that has nothing to do with midwifery. I mean, what's your take on this? So it's true. I mean, in those cases, as you're pointing out, Augustine, midwives are being uh, regulated and overseen by their competitors and their mm -hmm. competitors with zero understanding of mm -hmm. what they do because what's involved in out-of-hospital birth is and physiological birth is different from what they do in the hospital setting. So that's Absolutely. really problematic I've where it occurs. Go ahead. I, well, I was just going to say, I've oftentimes made the analogy for folks that are outside of this political debate, that it would be like having the restaurant industry have the authority to oversee food trucks. <laughs> they're, they're both making food, right? But one perceives the other as or taxis overseeing Ubers. 
exactly. the taxi industry overseeing the Uber industry. But like it would be done, yeah. like it right. would be gone. And so of course there would be no food trucks if the restaurants could say, actually there should be no competition in front of my store. Right. And that's essentially what's happening with the obstetric run boards, policing midwives. And, and it doesn't seem to be like there's really any solution once that gets done. I think there so, are solutions. Okay, so I can, tell, I can talk them. about some solutions. Yeah. I think in all of all, every problem that midwives are facing, the solution is to go on the attack, the counterattack, to be aggressive. You know, midwives, the way that midwives have been dealing with their legal status in the United States has been very defensive. And, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff, reasons for this, gendered reasons for this, you know, midwife, most midwives didn't get into this, be a fighter. They love moms and babies, you know, so they just get along, you know, and that's, that's the Oregon story. Again, midwives have been discriminated. The whole promise of licensure in Oregon was that midwives would be paid by Medicaid, you know, and that promise was never kept, right? They were, midwives were, had existed for 20 years in Oregon before they were licensed. By the time they were licensed, 4% of families were giving birth at home with midwives. And so the state wisely decided not to make all of those midwives criminals overnight by licensing them and making all the others. But what they did is they made licensure voluntary. And they said, those of you who choose to sign up for a license can now legally carry legends, drugs, and devices like Pitocin, et cetera, and you can bill Medicaid. But the promise was never kept. And you know maybe they could, if they jumped through all the hoops and their clients were willing to jump through all the hoops, they could get a few dollars at the end. But midwives should have gone on the tack long ago. They should have gone on, they should have said this, you have broken your promise. This is discrimination and we need this to change. And so, for example, if you're in a state where the nursing board or the medical board is where they've licensed CPMs, but you're being overseen by a different board, like basically once you achieve licensure, midwives and their representative organization should insist the state do everything else it has to do in order to, to actually integrate. So in Oregon and everywhere else, it is unbelievably unacceptable for the EMTs not to be trained and equipped for an out-of-hospital birth transfer. That is reckless endangerment that the state is committing against all the families that choose to give birth out of hospital. And even if those EMTs are privately owned, the state can require them to be equipped. For God's sake, how many cases have I worked on where the baby needed a resuscitation and a transfer. The midwife had that baby alive, breathing through her bag and mask, through her resuscitation. And when the EMTs got there, they pushed that midwife off the baby. And they, they say, well, we don't have the, the, we don't even have the right size. And the baby's dying right in front of them. And the midwives were watching it and, and it all, and the baby dies because the EMTs didn't know what to do. And then, but, and then everything six, six happened the year that I was leaving 2015, 2016, between so, Oregon and Washington, six babies died in the hands of EMTs right. that were live when they left the home. Yep. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and one way that midwives say in Oregon have done this is like offered the EMTs to please train with them. And, oh, we have a nice training system. And that's great. It's wonderful to develop training systems. They can't be voluntary, you know, like, so yeah. I only know of one case that I'm not, you know, one case where a parent who whose baby died as a result of a botched transfer is actually suing the city and the EMTs and the fire department. Um, that, that has to happen. They have to be held accountable. Yeah, midwives midwives need to go to the state and say, 
okay, now we're licensed. Now you need to, to integrate. That means EMTs trained yeah. and equipped. That means everybody who oversees us or intersects with anything we do is trained and understands what we do. So like back to the yeah. medical board point, if you're overseen by your medical board, organize, put it in writing, why this has to happen. We need some training. Y'all need to know, understand what we do before you look at any of our cases, because otherwise we're being regulated by ignorance and That's right. set up that training. You know, again, like you have your state organized midwives, um, figure out how they're going to come and see what you do, come to your birth centers, yeah. come to your home births, hear what you do in a presentation, hear how you handle different things. Talk about who your experts are that they can draw upon. Um, if they face this kind of stuff, develop that dialogue, you know what I mean? Not only so that they know you, but so that they um, understand trust you tr and that, yeah. that you can trust them, yeah. you know, that, yeah, that they understand exactly. that you're going to hold them accountable for any discrimination and any BS that endangers your client. And the third point on this, that's really important, EMTs, training the state, hitting back on the doctors that do a punitive transfer against your client. When you transfer your client to a hospital, and your client is endangered because of some BS, Dr. BS, where they were not listening to you, not talking Unitive to you, care. not even looking mm -hmm. at you, or that's problem number one. If they're not talking to you, they are now endangering your client because you hold mm -hmm. all the information about everything prior to this transfer. And if their discrimination is keeping them from communicating with you, they are endangering your client. They're not allowed to disrespect mm -hmm. you once you get there. Two, but if you speak up, they have you thrown out. I mean, it's such a hostile environment. I've had clipboards get, flung at my okay. head. I've been cussed of out. Course. I've been thrown out of a hospital. So and it's just so file. Like, what do you do? On, you file a complaint on that doctor's license with the medical board. You file a complaint on that nurse's license with the nursing board. You document yep. that stuff. You and then yep. you, as an organized group of midwives, you do it every single time, and then you track. How many hospitals have we had to do this at? Where are the hospitals that are, that are most endangering our clients? You know what I'm saying? Get off the defense of, oh my God, the doctor was so mean to me. I wonder if he's going to file a complaint on my license. Preempt yeah. that complaint by filing a complaint yeah. on his license because he endangered your client. Sometimes yeah. you'll be able to I, I finally got smart. Sometimes you I won't. I finally got smart at this. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and sometimes you they they do. All of a sudden they start being nice to you. You can tell that their, their overlords are putting heat on them for the complaints they their lawyers have to keep reviewing. Correct. Up in yep. Portland, uh, you know, the biggest hospital up there um, was filing complaints on the hospital on the birth center right down the hill from them every single transfer, um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And then the midwives sued that hospital and it stopped. Yep. Meetings yep. aren't going to stop it. Trying to be sweet isn't going to stop it. Yep. But here's the big, big question for both of you is like, how do we as busy on call, mostly sleep deprived midwives who are struggling to get reimbursed have enough time, money, and resources to actually be on the aggressive. By not doing it by yourself, by doing it together and organized yeah. and being yeah, willing to work together and carry the load as with your sister midwives. Yeah, definitely. yeah and I, I mean, yeah, go ahead, Katie. Tell us. I, I was going to say it, it really also has to come from the consumers. Mm -hmm. um, we just had a issue here in New Hampshire where, you know, I was saying it's great because we have a midwifery council in New Hampshire and um, I would much rather be investigated by peers than investigated by somebody who doesn't know what I do, you know. Um, but just recently, the state tried to switch that so that it was a outside body that was going to be handling all of the investigations and licensing. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think New Hampshire only has 41 midwives. <laughs> so there's not a lot of manpower to be aggressive. But 
um, all they did was they notified all of their clients and said, hey, this is going to happen. If it happens, it means that there will be more investigations. There will be more midwives facing loss of license. People will not understand what it is we do if they're not a midwife. And they had a bunch of consumers show up to the hearing about that particular bill. And um, it effectively got it um, tabled into oblivion. Um, so yeah, I think that that consumer base is so important and um, really getting families involved. It is a thousand mm-hmm. percent right. Midwives cannot stand up ultimately mm-hmm. For yeah. the human rights of their birthing clients. Mm-hmm. We only can stand up for our own rights. You know what I yeah. mean? And so your clients need to understand that what's at stake in your work is their rights. And mm-hmm. they can only do that through your storytelling. And, you know, I, I'm the whole reason I do this work is my love of my midwife. And because she shared with me what midwives were dealing with, I loved her. We became friends. And I just listened to her stories for several years between the birth my first child in 2007, 2010, and she would just blow my mind. Midwives are such great storytellers. She would just blow my mind with what was happening even in the Netherlands in the hospital setting. And, um, and then when I had my second, she faced a complaint for doing twins out of hospital. And then it was like, okay, now I, I get it enough from the stories I've heard from her, what midwives are dealing with. And now I want to mobilize and protect my midwife. And I'm not the only person who feels that way, y'all. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if midwives yeah. no, share no, with you're their not. clients what yeah. they deal with, their clients mm-hmm. will, will show up to protect them. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Well, so um, for the people who are listening, who are you know now maybe afraid or now thinking, oh my God, now what? I always knew this was a possibility, but I was having my fantasy thoughts that I was protected from whatever. You know, uh, now they're now they're facing the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie, what would you recommend? What do you wish you knew? before you went through your ordeal that you could tell other people to prepare for or know about? Yeah, I think um, Hermine hit it really well when she said, you know, these fantasies that we keep in our mind of, you know, just putting water between ourselves and the midwife that's going through it or um, holding onto these memberships as, you know, things that will help. And when I went through my experience, when I looked around me, um, when I was, you know, there in the courtroom, the people that were supporting me were my clients. um, And midwives who had already been through it um, and midwives who were basically saying, you know, I could be next. Um, Those Mm -hmm. were the ones that were really supportive. And I think it's important to keep that mindset without being overly um, immobilized by the fear, but keeping the mindset that I could be next. And so doing Mm -hmm. things like um, making sure that you're effectively charting. I know um, as a um, you know, doing the insurance stuff now, how important that is, because insurance also likes to review charting, um, but effectively charting and also, you know, keeping, um, keeping in the back of your mind, the fact that um, if you are immobilized by fear, they've won preemptively. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't even need to attack you. <laughs> You've already been immobilized. Um, And there are plenty of us who have already gone through it um, that have, uh, you know, chosen to step aside because we're exhausted. Um, We need people who are willing to be um, in the thick of things to support these families in order for those families to have choices. Um, And it can't be done from a place of fear. It has to be done from a place of love, um, remembering the Mm. families. Mm. 
that's so important and so special. Thank you for that. I, I completely agree. And for midwives who are um, facing this, um, support is the most important thing. I know when I was facing it, I was completely abandoned by my community for those reasons you said, Katie, like they put the distance and they say, oh, she must have done something wrong. And I, I, the way I teach midwifery now includes the work of Brene Brown because she does this incredible work around vulnerability and the anatomy of trust. And I think that I teach about this in my masterclass and I share it all the time. But if we really understand that um, we need to give everyone this generous thought, like you have to afford them the highest possible respect that you can if you don't know details, then you don't know details. We always are going to assume the best of someone. So that, yeah. that to me is kind of a hallmark of the process. And um, I would encourage all new midwives, if you hear stories of your peers or your senior midwives going through cases like this, assume the very best, assume that, that they got it wrong. And I think the whole community would change if that one action happened. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also yeah. because, um, Oftentimes midwives are in a situation where they're told that they can't talk about what's going on. Um, exactly. you know, e even if they did absolutely nothing wrong, um, you know, they're, they're on a gag order. attorney who's smart, who's mm -hmm. saying, you know, don't talk about it. Don't talk to the media. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, and the media yeah. is the worst because they have yeah. absolutely no idea what home birth is no. or what midwives no. do. And so some of the stuff they report is just completely out of left field. Not just some, um, I, yeah. I comment here. <laughs> yeah. Um, having worked on many, midwife cases and gone deep into the facts of what actually happened and seen those cases written up by the press. I don't think I've ever seen the facts accurately represented mm -hmm. in a, a news article. And so I think an important point to add to what Augustine just said regarding benefit of the doubt is to know if you're reading it in the newspaper or even probably if you're reading it in a um, publication by the state of their complaint against the midwife, mm -hmm. there is more to this story than is oh, written yeah. down here. And, and you and, as a midwife should know that because if you look yeah. at that complaint, it probably erases or invisibilizes the agency of the client. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one you of, as a midwife know that's not true. One of the uh, complaints that came against me through the process of the investigation, um, they had a colorectal doctor reviewing my um my, you know, process at the birth, I guess was, <laughs> he was the medical reviewer, uh, not even an obstetrician, didn't even do deliveries. And one of the complaints that he put in his write-up was that I let the patient eat in labor. And this is in her own home, A, <laughs> and B, even the hospital allows people to eat now. So I don't even know how long ago he did his rotation through obstetrics. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's that's the kind oh, of left field God. stuff that gets reported. So, yeah. Right. Oh, my and, God. So I just want to also speak yeah. to this, you know, your point, Augustine, is like, what what's the message for new midwives or midwives who haven't gone through this? Stuff yeah, like Hermine, tell us, what would you tell them? Yeah, um, I would say... Um, uh, First of all, charting, you know, I, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm glad you're going to speak to your uh, class. Um, I think if I can say one thing to supplement whatever else you're gonna say, it's um, the more marginalized her choice would be in your community, the more detailed and thorough your informed consent charting needs to be. Baseline, exactly. like Katie said, baseline out of hospital is already political. So that needs to be very solid. Your informed consent for out of hospital birth. And I, I think if there's one little 
smidge of advice that I will add to whatever else you're teaching the clients, uh, midwives, about how to chart and create informed consents. It's don't write in your informed consent. If you go to the hospital, they're going to give you a C-section. Don't write in your informed consent anything that's going to happen to them at the hospital because you actually don't know. Even if you know every, what that happened a hundred times in the past, you don't know what doctor's going to be there this time. You don't know if they're going to force that breech baby into a C-section. You cannot know that for sure. So don't write anything on there that could look like you're trying to drive her toward your care. Mm-hmm. And don't Unbiased, write- Unbiased. Right, and don't write, you know, you, know yeah. you acknowledge that out of hospital, that babies might die in out of hospital birth, just as they might die anywhere. Come on, you're informed consenting for out of hospital birth. Talk about that. So, and then, you know, the more, again, the more marginal choice, BBAC, twins, breech, triplets, quintriplets, the more uh, it's going to be perceived as a high risk choice, the more this person making an informed and active choice to pursue it needs to write in her own hand. This is at the end of the day, always my advice when you're in twins and breaches, she'd write the whole thing out. I know that my risks are blah, blah, blah. I know that, you know, and, and I am freely choosing this with no, you know, like with no influence and I'm, you know, et cetera, like that. One, side that. Okay. One yeah. thing I would, I would add that I, I wish that I had known um, in my particular case that I think probably applies to a lot of student midwives and, and midwives as well. Um, is to really familiarize yourself with your state's laws um, rather than just trusting the local midwifery community to tell you what the state laws are. Um, And that means going to your state's website, looking up the actual laws that relate to midwifery and medical care, and also looking at the regulations, especially if your um, state has licenses to look at what the regulatory requirements are as well. 100%. And Mm. if you don't understand them, call a lawyer. And so this is my second piece of like major advice for those who want to be able to practice with security, in addition to the stuff we've already talked about. And that is if you get a call for an investigation, you know, against you, have a lawyer next to you when you have that conversation. My experience in the state of Oregon is that if midwives, you know, they get a letter of investigation, there's been a complaint filed against you and we wanna talk to you, we wanna see your records, we wanna talk to you on date X. And sometimes very often midwives think, well, I know I didn't do anything wrong here. This is just that jerk at the hospital who's threatened to file a complaint on me did so. I'll just explain myself and hopefully this is gonna go away then. And, but it's like, this gets back to your point of Mm -hmm. when you're scared, when you're traumatized, your brain doesn't work it well. It's not just you, Augustine, it's everybody. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and also you're not like the whole, one of the values that a lawyer can bring to you is that they're trained in understanding communication, you know what I mean? And hearing all the ways that your words might be misinterpreted by whoever is hearing that story. And so if a midwife does that thing where she goes by herself before the licensing board and tells her story by herself, um, then, and then she gets a notice of a proposed discipline in the mail that says you did blah, 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 blah. And we're going to suspend or revoke. And then she calls me. It's different. My ability to get her cleared is different. If she calls me before the investigation interview and I can sit there and I can review the records with her and we can talk mm-hmm. through stuff she might be asked and I can get her comfortable with telling the story. And then I can sit there with her. I can hear the things that might be misunderstood. And then I can ask clarifying questions so that there's no confusion. Very often we can hit, we can resolve that complaint right then if she didn't do anything wrong. And if she, if, if a rule was violated, we'll understand what it was by the end and we'll be able to sort of 
find some sort of reasonable outcome for that. Um, but if she calls me after the investigation interview, what's more likely to happen then is that they're now running with a story. And that story can be wrong in all the ways you and I, we all just talked about, you know, false story. But I think it's a thing with humans that it's harder to get people to change their perception of a story than it is to get them to see things clearly from the start. So once it's a true in criminal law too, right? And like, so once they have that momentum of that story, um, it's much harder work to try to get the truth told. And so that's my, my advice, find that birth justice lawyer, not somebody who's going to be like, ah, you just, I'll just sit here and, you know, check my phone, but somebody who's actually... Your Somebody who's going to get it and <laughs> yeah. going to be able to really um, help you in that moment can make a real big difference. So do you, I mean, you're, you're definitely one of those people um, on the Midwifery Wisdom Collective website. You can have, you can schedule and pay for a consult with another birth justice lawyer, Keisha Chiappinelli. Um, that's midwifrywisdom.com. I know that um, Indra Lucera in Colorado with the Elephant Circle. Are there others? Uh, who, do we have a master list of these of these yeah, lawyers? Yeah, we do. It, it, it's kept by the Birth Rights Bar Association, and the okay. Birth Rights Bar Association is a you know small nonprofit that is creating an opportunity for those lawyers around the nation who do this work to connect and to um, to to learn from each other, et cetera. And I do believe that that website now has like a membership list that lists mm-hmm. sort of the states where folks are. And so you can look at that list and see if there's anybody there in your state. Not everybody on that list actually practices in this area. Some are just curious and learning, um, but mm-hmm. there's a good handful, you know, and, and mm-hmm. Indra, someone that that can make referrals within that mm-hmm. list. Keisha might yeah, they're amazing. as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, I think it's important for midwives to know that if they were going to trial or defending something in their state, they would need a state licensed attorney in their state. But to get counsel, you can consult with any of these birth justice lawyers around the country because it's birth justice. They're getting counseling, not those state laws. Do you agree with that? To some extent, to some extent. So if if you're if you can like a a lawyer outside of your state cannot counsel you on the law of your state. They can help you to document your story. They can help you to get the records reviewed and and talk with you about the midwifery standards of care in your community versus NARM standards, et cetera, and help you to formulate your position more from a factual perspective. If there are issues of federal law, they can counsel you with regard to those. Um, But the meaning of licensure, you know, legal licensure is that you have to be licensed within the state, like part of your license in that state because you studied that state's laws and you took a test that showed you know those laws, right? So you have to be licensed in order to counsel people on those state laws. And so, um, so yeah, so a, a consulting attorney outside your state can help you to some extent, um, and but they cannot represent you as you say, and they cannot consult with you. But one way that you can put it all together so you get what you need in many states, there is no birth justice lawyer, right? But there are lawyers who wouldn't mind learning or who are willing to represent you. They want to do a good job. This is just all brand new to them. And so then you can bring on an attorney from outside your state to consult with that attorney and support them in doing their best job for you. And then that's, it can be an ideal team because then you have that person that can represent you before the tribunal and and work with your birth justice lawyer to really understand how these states laws are going to apply to your case. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Keisha does for a lot of people. And I think you do as well. And um, it's, it's a very needed, we needed profession. I hope that it grows. The more you work with these local attorneys, I I hope they get interested and passionate about it. 
Yes. Well, so um, you saw that your midwife was threatened, Hermine, and so you took up the mantle to learn everything you could about human rights and childbirth and birth yes. justice. Katie, you went through what you did and, and wrote two books and then became an advocate for midwives on reimbursement, which is exceptional. I went through what I did and um, turned it into a 12-hour seminar on defensive charting that's got ACNM and Meek CEUs. And you can take that online at midwiferywisdom.com. This course has gotten an extreme amount of positive reviews. I'm just going to share a couple of them now. Um, Augustine's class on defensive charting was life-changing. This is a Michigan midwife. Um, I totally wish I had taken this course six years ago. Thank you again. Um, take this class, exclamation point. Um, and the way that this class was set up, I was able to retain the information much better than just charting. Very clear and helpful. I cannot thank you enough for this. I feel supported and connected. All midwives need this course. So just a reminder, you can find this at midwiferywisdom.com forward slash school. And you do get 12 CEUs by taking that course. Um, and we are offering a 10% off discount for um, listeners of this podcast. So we'll have that link down in the bottom of today's show notes. I want to thank you both so much for coming on and opening your hearts and opening your minds and sh sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, the, the content that you shared today is really going to help people. Thank you again. Thank you. I wanted to, to, if I could quickly do a little plug for your conference coming up. I just wanted yes, to mention that please. Jessica, yes. Jessica Weed is doing a um, talk and she has um, gone through a similar experience to, as, uh, you know, from what we went through um, and has retired into doing um, therapy. And so she's going to be doing one specific to trauma. I think that would be really um, important for midwives to know that are listening to this, so if they awesome. resonated with that. Absolutely. And Katie, we're going to try to get you to come to the conference as well. Yeah. Um, the Midwifery Wisdom Experience is uh, November 11th through the 13th in Galveston, Texas this year. We have a group of over 30 mentors and senior midwives who are teaching incredible courses, including Jessica Weed and her classes, uh, trauma-informed self-care. And we're very excited to have her. Uh, thank you again, both of you. Uh, can't wait to uh, see the reaction to this. If someone wanted to connect with you and contact you, how would they reach you? Social media, websites, what do you recommend? My website is um, hayeskleinlaw.com. Feel free to put it in the notes for this show and they Thanks. can reach me via the contact form on my website. Thank you. I'll share that. Thank Katie. you, Augustine. Um, I, I don't know that I have a way for people to generally uh, connect with me, but my billing uh, practice is STM billing and there is a website for that. So awesome. Thank we'll you. share that as well. Thank you both. Have a fantastic day and uh, keep taking good care of yourselves. We need you both so much. You too. Thanks. Nice to see you both. Bye.